This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. Welcome back. You are with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and my first guest this morning is journalist and writer of the best-selling book, Trans, Helen Joyce. Good morning and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, So great to have you here. The first question I have is, when did fantasy become fact? Because that's what it feels like in the world we're living in right now. Well, you're exactly right. I mean, the claims of what I call gender identity ideology in the book are fictional claims. Um, you can That's not an insult. That's just a fact that, you know, people do come in two sexes, but some people prefer to identify as not their sex. So that's a fiction. I reckon that this storm has been brewing for at least a century in trans ideology. In the book, I give some of the history and I talk about um, developments from the 1920s in Europe and trace that briefly forwards. Um, I would say it accelerated then in the 1990s in campuses, especially in America, um, and then really took off post-2010 when identitarianism took over left-wing politics. So that's the idea that the most important thing about any of us is our identity characteristics, um, you know, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're gay, straight, um, and whether, what your gender identity is. And at that point, people start to want to identify as things. And it's boring to be, you know, cis, white, straight, especially male. And you identify then as trans or queer or non-binary and you create fictions about yourself and you expect everyone else to buy in. So that's a very potted history. But that's my best attempt at an answer to a deceptively simple question. Identitarianism really has infected a lot of different uh, aspects of our lives. You know, it seems to be the one overriding sort of virus, really, isn't it? It's almost like a mind virus that's taken control. How do you think trans ended up becoming at the top of that identitarian totem? Because that seems to be the one identity and minority that seems to outweigh any of the others. How do you think that came about? Well, for historical reasons uh, in American culture, and of course, American culture is the global dominant culture, uh, you're not allowed to identify out of your race. In particular, you're not allowed to identify out of being white, because whiteness is seen as something rather like an original sin. It's something that if you're born white, you must spend your lifetime attempting to atone for. And if you could identify out of being white, you could identify out of being sinful. Um. But again, for sort of historical reasons, but much more recent to do with the way that academia developed, uh, thinking about what it meant to be male or female got caught up in what's called queer theory. And I'd love to give you a definition of queer theory, but I can't. It's basically a weird sort of amalgam where everything is turned upside down. Categories are thought of as bad and oppressive. Definitions are evil. um, And everything bad is good, basically. So you can identify out of your sex. And so, so that is very appealing to people who want to position themselves as victims. And we now live in a victimhood culture where to be a victim is to be a good thing. Uh, you can't identify into race categories, oppressed race categories, but you can identify into oppressed gender categories. And I think that makes it immensely appealing. Mm. It's also just kind of fashion, isn't it? It's the more modern thing to do. It's just yeah. it's just the thing now. Yeah, well, it, it, um place that you brought up fashion because I mean you you do have quite an extensive history in your book and from a fashion perspective we are seeing this particularly pervade amongst our teenagers especially amongst teenage girls is there an element of social contagion do you believe amongst that group 
Karen? Oh, I believe it's hugely driven by social contagion. I mean, it's just not feasible or plausible that, and this is the case, before 2010, there were no papers about gender identity or gender dysphoria in girls, teenage girls, none. And now that's the cohort that dominates worldwide. Um, I think that a lot of this has been driven by, uh, you know, well-off, well-established and generally very well-regarded organisations that fought for um, Black civil liberties and that fought for gay marriage, and they had run out of anything to do, so they seized the next thing to do. So I would put that at, um, well, 2013 in the UK and 2015 in the US, where gay, when gay marriage uh, was ruled by the Supreme mm. Court, so went nationwide. And then, you know, what do you do if you run the ACLU or the HRC yeah. or the GLAAD? You've got to find another cause or else you yeah. pack up and all go home and wind up the organisation. So those people really seamlessly turned to the next thing, the next big thing. That's part of the fashion element of it. But at the same time, kids are just looking for the next big thing. Mm. And now, you know, they don't, they can't fight for um, civil liberties uh, on the basis of race or on the basis of sexuality anymore, because basically those are one. Obviously, there's still racism and homophobia. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying they're not the big causes that they used to be for kids looking for a for a cause. Mm. So they go for gender identity instead. And then lastly, I would say that actually the idea that you aren't really your sex is an incredibly appealing idea. It doesn't tend to occur to people naturally because it's an incredibly stupid idea as well. But if it's put in your mind, it's like a seed that can grow because it is a problem growing up to be a human being with a sex like you have to transition from being a child into being a sexually mature adult. And that's a big task. It's big. You know, we, we probably don't remember as adults how hard it is to navigate that as a teenager. And if someone says that you can opt out, you can be non-binary or if the things that you don't like about yourself uh, can be ignored and forgotten because you are actually somebody of the opposite sex or just in general that you can reinvent yourself, new name, new pronouns. Uh, it's bigotry to mention your life history. That's an incredibly appealing idea to any miserable kid. And that's really all kids at some times. Mm. So yeah, it's absolutely a social contagion. Being a teenager is really difficult. And I've spoken to educators who tell me that this has become so fashionable and so alluring for teens because it takes essentially very boring teens that are otherwise invisible and makes them celebrated. There's they, absolutely an element of that. Yeah. You hinted before to linguistics, and I want to talk a little bit about language because I think this has been part of this sort of identitarian type movement, has been a hijacking of language. How have you seen that manifest in the trans community? Well, the thing about trans ideology or gender identity ideology is that it's entirely about language. You know, with race, it's not obvious that there are very clear categories of race, but there's something there. I mean, there, you know, skin colours do vary, ethnicities do vary, and people do have different um, histories in terms of where their families come from and originate. There's a there there. But when it comes to a trans identity, it's just a statement. It's just a declaration. There's no there there. It's just a linguistic thing. So they there or are they them these days? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good one. You know, there isn't really a thing that you can say no, you are or you aren't trans. Like there are behaviours, you can take on the clothing or the hairstyles or whatever the opposite sex. And if you're a girl, you can get your breasts cut off or whatever. But basically the rule is that you're not allowed to cast doubt on someone else's state of gender identity. So it's an entirely linguistic movement. And the thing about that is that it turns it into something very authoritarian. 
because the way that you assert your identity is by controlling other people's speech. So you say, this is my new name, my pronouns are they, them, my pronouns are he, him, whatever. And other people must then describe you that, or even though they can see perfectly well that you're not actually a sexless human being, or you're not actually a man. And that, I think, is why the linguistic policing is so fierce in it, because they haven't got anything else. Yeah. It's the one thing that they need to clutch onto. And that censorship, though, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about free speech. And I mean, we're talking on platforms like this because these discussions are now taboo in the mainstream platform unless you are pro the ideology and pro all the other identitarian elements. What about self-censorship, though? I get this feeling, Douglas Murray calls it, it's time for the grown-ups to enter the conversation. Why aren't the grown-ups entering the conversation? Oh, I think so many reasons. I mean, one of them is that it's uh, it's dangerous. You know, a lot of people know very well that their jobs depend on not noticing that there's something very strange here. And because this censorship is so virulent, because it's so important, if you want to uh, assert a trans identity, it's so important not to allow other people to contradict it because then it all falls apart. But there's also the thing that, you know, I mean, I, I say this advisedly, it's unbelievably stupid, this ideology. It's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like here we are with all sorts of real issues to be thinking about. Like whatever your cause is, that cause is still there. We still need to worry about poverty and sickness. We haven't cured cancer. You know, we had a pandemic, all this stuff. There's actual things you could be thinking about. And instead there are people claiming that human beings don't have two sexes or that girls can become boys or that sex is a spectrum or that suddenly we don't need to keep men out of the spaces where women are naked or vulnerable or whatever. You know, it's all unbelievably stupid. And it's so stupid that intelligent, ordinary people think this can't possibly be happening. Like if it hasn't come home to you, if you haven't got a child who's telling you that they're trans or it hasn't happened in your workplace or your marriage or something, you know, it's kind of something that's visible, you know, in your um, in your rear view mirror almost. Like you see it just at a drive-by speed. And you think that the critics must be exaggerating, like nobody can be making claims this stupid. And then political polarization, I think, is another reason. In America, it's become very associated with the right wing and with Christians, although I really don't think that stating that sex is real, binary and immutable is either a right wing mm. or a Christian position, particularly. I mean, it used to just be called common sense. But once it's labelled uh, far right or Christian conservative, then people who don't um, regard those labels as meaningful for them, think they must reject it. Mm. And then that means not listening to the people who say it and just digging further and further into your silo. And and then it becomes true, actually, that it's a, a Christian conservative position. But then that's also part of that uh, identitarian weaponized toolbox, isn't it, with language, is applying labels. You set the labels up you apply the stigma to them, and then you just roll them out to anybody that dares pop their head above the parapet and say something that you don't like to hear. So, and we all know them, don't we? We old white, white supremacist, racist, uh, anti-vaxxer is now new. You know, with the pandemic, they are just all there, literally, to stifle conversation and stop debate. Well, it means that people don't listen to what you say because mm. there are people who are very bad. I mean, the things I get called most are anti-Semitic and genocidal, which is just very strange. You know, people who don't know me, well, I mean, I might be anti-Semitic or genocidal. There are people who are those things. So how is somebody who doesn't know me to know that those things are just 100% invented? And so it's very effective, really. It mm. means that you have to keep 
you know, you have to you, you have to keep saying, you know, I'm not those things. And when you're on the back foot, like what, you know, it's the sort of never apologize, never explain thing. Like once you have to say, no, actually, I don't really fancy, a, you know, mass slaughter of an entire group. Like people think, well, why does she have to say that? You know, no smoke without fire or something. Yeah, but see, I'm glad you brought up genocidal because the trans, this concept of trans genocide, I'm waiting to see the bodies. I don't know where these bodies are. Do you know where they're hidden? It's funny, isn't it? It's such a an obviously falsifiable claim. You know, in, in any developed country, we record deaths and causes of death. And I mean, I think that if there were trans people dying in any numbers at all, let alone large numbers, we'd never hear the end of it. And I realised recently that um, it's, it's because of the narcissism at the centre of the claim that you can redefine yourself as anything you like and everyone else must go along. Um, there's a concept of narcissistic injury. Um, one of the things about a narcissistic person is that um, they experience anybody at all criticising them or disagreeing with what they say about their inflated sense of self. They experience that as a grotesque attack, like actually something that's uh, you know potentially um, fatal. So I think that's part of the reason. I think that when you say, you know, you do you, I don't care how you identify, it doesn't bother me, dress how you like, but I'm not calling men women or women men. That feels like a narcissistic injury and they respond to it with a totally disproportionate rage. And to them, it feels like being um, erased. That's another word they use. They're being erased. I'm like, I'm not erasing you. I'm just noticing that you're male or female, mm. Did which you I notice about everybody. I can't stop myself. Did you see any of the imagery when Posey Parker came to visit New Zealand? And rage, I think, is a word that describes a lot of that imagery. There was a lot of that rage that was internalised and then was acted out, and it woke a lot of New Zealanders up. Up until that point, we were just really sleeping along. Most everyday Kiwis, <coughs> excuse me, most everyday Kiwis were looking at this issue and they were thinking, oh, this is a town problem. This is a problem that's in town. It's not a problem in the rest of New Zealand. And then they saw those images. We had a media who, like the riots in the United States, you know, the fiery but mostly peaceful protests, you know, that CNN had, we had similar things here. And all you could see in the vision were these exceptionally threatening, angry, rageful men. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, really nasty men look around for where the trouble is. They're, they don't start with the cause. They look to see where the trouble is and that's where they go. So when I was a child in the north of Ireland, you know, when there were still the troubles going on, you know, the sort of men who like to punch people and do worse, well, they would join the paramilitaries. And I mean, honestly, it wasn't because they had a very deep sense of the importance of staying within the United Kingdom or of reuniting Ireland, or at least not always. Just, you know, troublesome people go where the trouble is. And right now, if you fancy standing and shouting at women, in particular middle-aged women, so women like your mother, and calling them, you know, disgusting things, you can do it totally with impunity if you go along to a rally of gender-critical feminists. Um, in other words, people who notice that there are two sexes and insist that that matters for women's rights. And you will not only not get policed in doing so, you will be able to think of yourself as some sort of uh, civil rights warrior. It's incredibly appealing. It's, you know, it's the new misogyny. Mm, this always seems to be a repeating pattern of women being self-destructive towards women and men 
getting their own way and acting out their misogyny as they always have. The costumes may be different, but the intent is still the same. Yeah, I have a mug that has the suffragette colours on it, uh, which is um, green, white and purple. And it just says, same shit, different century. And I really think it's true. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Very much so. Why do you think some of the smartest people in our societies have fallen for this ideology? Um, So there's an interesting phenomenon whereby um, it takes quite a clever person to believe certain things that are obviously stupid to anyone who isn't so blinded by their own cleverness. Once you have decided that you believe something, which may be for reasons to do with your intellectual tribe or because you have a family member who requires you to believe it, then you can turn your brain power into finding the the sort of complicated self-justifications required for believing it and also um, putting it into putting your brain power into the incredible amount of effort that's required to conceal the truth from yourself, the truth about your motivations, the truth about what's going on more widely. So cleverness really can be weaponized against yourself. And also, you know, clever people are the ones who mostly go to university and the ones who went to university and studied anything in the liberal arts or the humanities or the social sciences in the past 10, maybe 20 years, they've been told as fact that, you know, to notice the sex of somebody who doesn't want you to notice their sex is bigotry, that not accepting a man who says he's a woman as a woman is exactly the same as racism, and that it's very difficult to define sex. There's a whole bunch of things they've been taught, you know, as fact, alongside actual facts. And you quickly look around you and realize that if you don't accept this, you're going to be completely cast out. Mm. And so you don't question it. Mm. And if you do question it, well, you probably drop out. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, clever people can believe very stupid things because they're able to create the inventions that you need to believe those very stupid things. You mentioned tribe. How tribal is this? I mean, human beings are tribal by nature. And we're not as rational as we think we are by any means. You know, our brains evolved in order to help us to survive, not in order to help us to be calculating and logical machines. And in a tribe, which is what we all lived in until relatively recently in evolutionary terms, being cast out by your tribe really definitely meant death. So it was much more important to agree with what your tribe said than to be factually accurate or correct. Um, You know, that's what the function of tribal religions is. It's to maintain the cohesion of the tribe. You know, we haven't changed there hasn't been long enough, evolutionarily speaking, for us to change from that. So if all your tribe believes something, you have to be a particularly disagreeable sort of person in the psychological sense, which is just that you don't mind disagreeing with people. Mm. You don't mind them disagreeing with you. You don't seek approval. You have to be quite a disagreeable person in that sense to say, well, I don't have to go along with that because you do feel like you're going to be cast out and it does feel like social death. And social death for tribal people is death. Mm. Yeah, so it's very, very tribal. And then once you're inside a tribe, you believe what you're told within your tribe and you discount what's said outside your tribe because that's, you know, that's monsters. There be monsters outside Mm. your tribe. Yeah, there seems to be almost a a fear of facing up to the truth from a, a number of people. Like they know what the truth is. They just don't want to face it. You mentioned in an interview recently that you were speaking out largely due to because you didn't have any skin in the game. So it allowed you to do that. Because you must have faced, since the book was released and the amount of work that you've done, there must be a huge 
group of people buying for you to be cancelled? Or are you now uncancellable, Helen? You've uh, no, cancelled. I'm definitely not uncancellable. There's precisely one person in this game who's uncancellable, and that's J.K. Rowling. None yeah. of the rest of us are that big. Bless yeah. her. I mean, she didn't need to come into this fight, and bless her, she made such a difference by doing so. So she's too big to cancel. I'm not. Um, I guess when I said I didn't have any skin in the game, what I meant was, you know, I'm not trans-identified. I don't have a trans-identified child. You know, I'm of an age that, like, I'm in my 50s, so it's not that the, all the people around me are going to cast me out, which is true for some of the teenagers and girls in their 20s that I talk to. They know very well that if they say anything about any of this, they're going to have no friends. So, okay, that gives me some ability to speak because the people who most want to speak are the people who have trans-identified children and they think their children are making a terrible mistake. And very few of them are able to speak except privately because they don't want their child to cut them off. So I hear a lot from those people and I feel a moral obligation as a journalist to amplify their voices mm. because that's what journalism is meant to do, actually. It's meant to give voice to the voiceless. Like That's kind of the motto of journalism, but we're not doing that right now. I have received a lot of criticism, but I mean, I guess I'm as tribal as anyone else because I've found my new tribe, which is the people who think this is all nonsense and are working very hard, especially in the UK, to roll back the intrusions and encroachments of gender ideology on all of us. And I find that an enjoyable and um, fulfilling um, thing to be doing with my days. So I can ignore the fact that there's a very strange belief system. I don't think about it moment to moment. I think about the work that I'm doing. Mm. And that's satisfying. The book was 2018, 2019? No, no, it's a 2021. The book came out in 2021, summer 2021. So it's about two years ago. Yeah, it feels so much longer than that. It's a long time in the world of an ideological world, isn't it? Time. Oh my god, it's so true. I mean, you know, you know this word "turf," like which stands for trans exclusionary radical feminist, which I don't think is a very good description of what we believe. But anyway, it's stuck. I often think that turf years are like dog years. You know, I live through seven years to normal one year. So much happens every day in this ideology. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel that there has been a positive momentum that there has now actually been a swing, even if it's like to I uh, to fight a problem, you need to identify a problem. Are you starting to see some positive movement of people waking up that are finding their voices a little bit and adding their voices to this conversation? Absolutely. And the thing about this sort of social change is that it um, it's like an avalanche and that you know it's little things at first and then they make more things move. So every person who speaks up and every person who says, look, I don't go along with this, the emperor has no clothes, that makes it easier for the next person. And that speeds up. I would caution in thinking that this can be just sort of sorted by Christmas or something like that, though, because this was going on for a long time before anyone sensible and sane noticed. And during that time, uh, this ideology sort of got its tendrils into all sorts of laws, rules, regulations, policies. It's captured pretty much the entire charitable sector, much of the media, publishing, you know, left-wing political parties. And I think of it as kind of like a Japanese knotweed that's invaded all these places and returning to sanity, returning to sanity on the subject of sex, like understanding that there are two sexes and that mostly that doesn't matter, but occasionally it does. That's going to be like clearing the Japanese knotweed. Every time you try, it just comes back. You've got to, we're going to have to be persistent and go after it for, I don't know, certainly years and maybe decades. Mm. I want to segue a little bit into money because I think money plays into this. I think these ideologies can only flourish in an environment of affluence, and that's where they started. 
Now that things inflation is biting internationally, we're seeing pennies being pinched and people finding things a lot more difficult financially. Those who see the financial interest in the ideology, so the NGOs that are raising millions and billions of dollars, the those that find it financially advantaged through trans washing or greenwashing or whatever the, the ideology may be, and then the reality of what we have in the current economic climate. What sort of effect do you think that that might have moving forward? Do you think that actually might help wake people up that they'll start seeing when they've got something bigger to worry about, the absolute nonsense of this will become more apparent? Yeah, possibly. But the problem is that it's now embedded um, so if you take just a standard organization that has, I mean, in this country, it's Stonewall that comes in and they come in, you sign up to their scheme, they give you, you know, you pay a relatively small fee, but of course you pay it every year and there's hundreds and thousands of businesses paying it. So it's very nice money for them. And they come in and tell you what to do to be a champion and then to be put on a league table. And every year it has to escalate because last year you did whatever it was. Well, this year they're going to ask you to do more. So we're now at, you know, give two different ID cards to non-binary staff so they can use whichever one they want each day. I'm not making that one up. That's literally one of the things they recommend, um, giving them different email addresses so they can email as a different person each day. Like, how is that to work? You know, it's just so stupid. And if you ever drop out, it's a bit like a, a protection racket. You know, if you ever drop out, you look like you're a very bad employer and that you don't care about equality, diversity and inclusion and so on. So they've kind of got you over a barrel. And there you are. Like this is happening across the media, for example. And the media industry is dying on its feet. Like, as you know, it's gone through incredible difficulties over the last 20 years. Like all the money has gone to Google and to Twitter and to Facebook. There's no advertising left. You know, salaries are flatlining. People are being cast, laid off, absolutely dying as an industry, and yet absolutely obsessed at the same time with all this stuff because it's become embedded. And also a lot of young people really feel that they must or that they should play along with this stuff. So they come into the workplace and into the workforce. And the first thing they ask is things like, you know, do you have gender neutral toilets? And, uh, you know, can I check that you, um, you're a gender affirming? And what's your policy on this? And they put their pronouns in their email signature. And you're like, this is just so tiresome. Um, I, so, I mean, I don't think there's a simple answer like that, you know, people will give up this nonsense when they've got better things to be doing in a difficult economy. I think it's with us now. You know, we actually have to actively get rid of it and move it along. Mm. And I'm also wondering whether it's a generational thing. You know how often one generation will rebel against the generation previously. And I'm of similar age to you. So I look at all of this through the lens and thinking, when did common sense turn into Elvis and leave the building? I just don't get it. I have a grumpy old lady moment. I look at my sons. And I talk really open a bit openly with them about this. I talk openly with their friends about this. I get some hope because they can see it. They see it predominantly amongst their female friends, but they can see it. And I say to them, well, what do you think? And universally, they say, oh, they can see it for what it is. They see the Yeah, I mean, the peak has passed. I really think so. Even though schools are desperately attempting to totally ideologically brainwash younger children. If schools go the way of the worst in America, you know, California and the rest, we will, we were lost. We've left the enlightenment is over. It's gone. Yeah. My experience is that teenagers aren't as bad as people in their late teens and early twenties, or maybe even up to the age of 30, like graduates, late twenties are really, really bad on this, like horrific. And then the girls, as you say, are much, much worse than the boys. A lot of, a lot of girls 
have really decided that trans people are the most oppressed in the world. And there's this sort of somewhat toxic dynamic sometimes among teenage girls where they like to adopt a, a pet oppressed person and make themselves feel good or, um, you know, very performatively do virtue in front of everybody. And boys don't tend to go very much for that stuff. So, yeah, the boys are much less likely to go along with it. And then, of course, it just will become boring, like especially the things like the neo pronouns and, you know, the affirmations and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. Like nothing lasts forever. No fashion lasts forever. I I think those things have already passed their peak. I just hate the fact that people have forgotten how to use the word no, because there are just things that you just have to go, no, hand goes up, no. We got an email from a friend laughing, like literally laughing their ass off because they got an email from the principal because they now have a furry identifying at the school. This email from the, the principal trying to convey to parents to then have open conversations to convey to their sons that this is now what's happening and that they must uh, allow this boy to identify at school and there be no bullying. No. No, no. Yeah, I mean, it's a failure of, of of adulting, a failure of parenting, isn't it? You know, I'm the eldest of nine kids, big Irish family, and my parents are great. They're very kind people. But, you know, there wasn't much time for that sort of bullshit. Like, there was just too much else going on and too many other people to be thinking about at any point. I think we've forgotten. It's not just the word no. It's th- just things like that. That's not going to happen, darling. Mm. Or... um. I know you'd like it, but I'm afraid I can't do it. Yeah. You know, that sort of just kind, firm explanation that this is not a perfect world. You'd not get everything you want. And then another trend that I feel it very much feeds into this is this idiotic idea that you should bring your whole self to work. I want people to leave their whole selves at home. I don't want them to bring whatever you know, personal issues or whatever. Okay, I understand that we have to be supportive. Of course, people may be going through a hard time. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about turning up and, you know, telling everybody that it's rainbow month or that it's this, that or the other month. I don't care. We're here to do a job. Let's all of us turn up, do our job and go and live at home. Yeah. It's interesting you bring up with family, actually. I'm I'm from a small family, but a large extended family, large Irish Maori extended family. Do you think part of this ideology is grasped hold because the kids that are that are there now, so the teenagers in early 20s now, are part of that group. You know, the birth rate has dropped significantly since the early 70s. And so these are kids that are now growing up in much smaller nuclear families. So therefore, they're little prince and princesses in their families and those boundaries are no longer there. And as you said, they're taking their whole self to university, their whole self to school, their whole self to work. Do you think that is a part of the evolution of this? Oh, absolutely. Surely. All the things you said and to which I'd add that in this world that we've moved to where people have far fewer children and far later, many more people reach early adulthood without any experience of having to look after children. Like, okay, so I was from a very big family, but even if I wasn't, you know, kids played outdoors and it was expected that the older kids did some element of looking after younger kids. So you just become a bit aware of the fact that children believe a whole load of very odd things. So I have two boys and my younger boy is now 17. But when he was two, three, four, he literally was a train. I'm not kidding. 
I mean, he got up every day and told me what colour he wanted to wear. That was his paint. He called his hands buffers. He called his feet wheels. He lived for Thomas the Tank Engine. He had maybe 20 or more little trains and he'd bring them out with him and he'd talk to them. And, and he abruptly sort of stopped when he was four. But he really spent about two years being a train. And then you hear people saying that children know their gender identities when they're two. It's like, well, you know, you really have to have not met many children to think that that makes any sense. Um, and, and then it's, it's very much American-led ideas of what parenting is about, that it's about affirming your child, like it's about self-esteem and it's about learning from your child. That's another one I've heard, you know, um, child-centered parenting. And if that just meant like, let's not be mean to children, I'm fine for it. Like, let's not pretend that children are little adults. But it doesn't. It means that the child is the king of the household. And that's absolutely nonsense. I'm not going along with that. I mean, I'm not mean to my children, but I'm the head of the household, thanks. Like, I'm the grown-up. I'm the one who knows stuff. They're they're the little ignorant people who have to be looked after until they become adults and told what's what. No, I read a book recently, which was, uh, it was all about um, parents talking about their trans children. And it was full of these idiotic quotes like, um, I've learned so much from my little trans guy. He is so wise and... Uh, you know, I have grown as a mother by witnessing his true spirit, mother of six-year-old. You're like, seriously? I didn't learn anything from my six-year-old except to be more patient and how to survive without any sleep. Actually, one of my sons was a train too. And then he snapped out from being a train and decided he wanted to be a velociraptor because he thought that was much more exciting. That's fine. That's their imaginations. And you let them do that. There is no harm. Yeah. But the minute they start identifying, then you have all the psychological harms that can go on board with that. And then once the social transitioning, I hate that term, then moves to hormone replacement and puberty blockers and this irreversible damage. Are we going to have an entire generation of children who are going to be permanently scarred from this? I once saw how many people have been given lobotomies during the lobotomy craze. Um, and I think it was in America, I think it was 50,000. That's all. And we still regard lobotomies as the quintessential example of a medical scandal about 70 years later. You know, back then it was so fashionable and they were so sure it was the right thing to do that the guy who invented the lobotomy was given the Nobel Prize. And now, you know, we recognize that chopping up people, bits of people's brains was a true human rights abuse. Well, they're still lauding John money, and look how that turned out. Well, exactly. And I mean, we're going through a similar medical scandal, except I think the numbers are probably larger. Nobody's counting because in American gender clinics where this happens the most, a lot of them are private and Planned Parenthood will give out hormones with just a phone conversation or a one hour drop in and it'll be a nurse who you talk to and not even a doctor. Um, there are hundreds of Planned Parenthood clinics and no gatekeeping, at them at all, uh, no gatekeeping at them at all. Um, so we just don't know how many kids are being caught up in this, but really a lot. Think about what social transition means. There's this real tendency, and I know I said it at first too, to think, oh, well, social transition, you know, at least that's reversible. Like the bad thing about it is that it leads to irreversible changes. Like people, children who are socially transitioned are much, much, much more likely to go on to, to want puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones than ones who aren't socially transitioned. But I've since realized that social transition on its own causes a lot of harm. Um, for a start, it's a lie 
that is told to a child and that the child then requires everyone around them to go along with, and they're told that if people don't go along with it, then those people are hateful, bigoted, want them dead, all that sort of thing. So it creates a very fragile child who really just believes that reality is hateful and that people noticing reality are bigots who want them dead. Like that's psychologically extremely damaging. And then there's a lot of families where um, the parents are absolutely desperate to try to stop their child from doing this, but they fear that if they are strict about it, their child will kill themselves because that's the lie that's told by the transgender lobby groups. And those parents find themselves in a desperately difficult situation because everyone's against them. Doctors are against them. Schools are against them. Social workers threaten to take their children away. Like it's absolutely horrific. Their own friends and family members sometimes think that they must be bigots and cut them off. And I talked recently to two families where a young teenage girl temporarily identified as either non-binary or a boy. That's often the transition. They start saying non-binary and then they say trans boy. And in neither case did the girl go on to anything physical. Like in both cases, they desisted without even using a breast binder. And the families were in bits, massively traumatized by the whole experience because what they learned was that all the institutions they had thought, like these were happy families, you know, happily married families with great kids, nice jobs, like just great people, the sort of people who think that the world works properly. And they had learned that they were living in the upside down, that none of that was true. That is a scarring experience. It's very like the experience of being randomly attacked on the street, which leaves people really traumatized because they can think, you know, I thought I was safe all those years and actually I was never safe. So, yeah, these are people who are really being harmed by this, even even in the case of the most minor examples, a child who temporarily identifies as something they're not and then comes out of it. Mm. And there's also that insertion, too, between both state and ideology into that doctor-patient relationship. We saw that during COVID, we're seeing that now. And that entire principle of informed consent and do no harm seems to be only a sometimes thing. Trust, I worry about that trust being eroded. And I worry very much about trust in the education system in particular. Like a lot of teachers really genuinely seem to believe it's their job and not parents' job to tell children what to think and are absolutely unhesitating in telling children that their parents are bigots. That's a terrible intrusion on the most fundamental relationship that any of us have. I mean, your teachers are not going to be there for you if you're sick. They're not going to be there when you're old. You know, it's your family that do that for you. And I know there are people whose families don't do it for them, but they're the most unfortunate people in society. Like nothing else can replace a family. And yet these teachers think they have the right to tell children that what their parents think is backward and bigoted and that their parents hate them. Like what a dreadful thing to say to a child, that if your parents don't affirm a lie, they hate you. There was a woman here, um, God rest her soul, she died several years ago. Her name was Celia Lashley. And she is a former prison officer. And she saw a lot of young men coming through her prison doors and saw patterns in these young men. And the biggest pattern that she saw was what she called an underdeveloped risk muscle. She worked a lot with these youth, particularly in this country, Māori youth, but all of these young men. And she said, these young men were disconnected from their masculinity. They were disconnected from the wider environment, but they were also not able to assess risk and understand 
consequence and boundaries because they had never had those boundaries provided to them as they were growing up. So she came out with the series when I was raising my boys, which was for me really important. And I have taken a lot of those things to heart. I'm seeing that now with other kids, parents in my sphere with children the same age, they're going through these things and those boundaries are not there. And the kids have been helicoptered and cotton walled and affirmed and loved and cherished and nurtured, which is a wonderful thing. We want to do that with our children. But if we don't allow them to experience risk, loss, that resilience is not there. So when they're finally set free, they become statistics on the road. They become statistics to these sorts of ideologies. Are you seeing patterns like that up there? Yeah, I mean, the one I pick out really is um, this idea that any failure, any anxiety, any challenge to your worldview is something that's so horrible and terrifying and dangerous that you must be kept away from it. You must be kept safe from it and you must reject it. Like you must tell people that you're not going to listen to anything so hateful, that sort of thing. Whereas actually trying things that are difficult is generally a very good thing for you, unless it's so difficult that you end up, you know, killing yourself or something. And it's good whether you succeed or fail. If you succeed, you learn that you can do difficult things and you gain confidence. But when you fail, you learn that um, the world does, the ground doesn't open up in front of you. The life doesn't end. It's actually a very reassuring thing to realize that you can fail and get up and try again. And so, There's an epidemic of uh, children self-diagnosing or being diagnosed as having anxiety disorder or depression. And those kids are then given special accommodation in education, which is, you know, they get longer time for their tests or they aren't put through timed tests or they're allowed to not do things like, say, present their work to the class or be called on in class to speak. But those are precisely the low risk well, no risk, really, uh, sorts of slightly scary challenges that enable you to build up your muscle for coping with anxiety. And so these kids who are have anxiety disorders and are being specially treated because they have an anxiety disorder are not being given what they need to learn to cope with anxiety. And this creates monumentally selfish and fragile young adults who think that the whole world should be allowed to well, should be made to bend to accommodate them. Like, how is someone like that going to cope in the world of work when deadlines are quite common? Mm. You see people come into journalism who think that it's extraordinary that they might have to work to a deadline. As they're moving through the education system now, there is often no winners and losers. That's so wrong. Yeah, the experience of losing, of wanting something and failing, is actually a very important experience. I mean, to, if I'm to do one of my parenting stories, I remember years ago when my older boy um, very much wanted to be chosen to be the soloist in a performance at Christmas in his school. But there was a kid who was just a much better singer. Like there was a kid who was really, really good. And my kid was just good. And he said to me, did I think that he should put himself forward? And I said, well, what's going to happen if you don't put yourself forward? You're not going to get it. Now, what happens if you do put yourself forward? Well, you might get it, but you probably won't. It's a no-brainer. Like, put yourself forward. And he did. And he didn't get it. And the ground didn't open up. And I said, I was very proud of him. And that was a great experience. And he was quite happy with that. And we've always remembered that since, these experiences of trying to get something that you want and failing. And that's all right. Your mum still loves you. You still have all your friends. Mm. You know, your legs didn't, didn't fall off. And it's just a very growing experience. It's how you, you produce more confident people. Well, you can't win the lottery if you don't buy a ticket. 
Yeah, yeah. So and you probably to... won't win the lottery. So, you know, that's exactly. fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, the book Trans is available pretty much everywhere. Um, Amazon here in New Zealand. Uh, I, I've actually downloaded it on Audible. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, where else can people find you, Helen? If they're loving this conversation, they want to have more Helen, where do they find you? My website is thehelenjoyce.com. Some poor American artist is called Helen Joyce and she got there first. I often wonder what her emails are like, but anyway, too bad. So thehelenjoyce.com. And I have a weekly newsletter, um, which I put there. And I try to put up most of my conversations with people like you there, although actually I'm way behind at the moment. So they can read, they can they can listen to my back catalogue and read my back catalogue there. Um, I also have a column in The Critic, which is a monthly magazine here in the UK, and that's obviously available online anywhere in the world. And I tweet at H Joyce Gender. So my first initial H, my surname Joyce, and the word gender all run together. Quite a prolific tweeter, so people will find everything that I do there. That's wonderful. This has been Helen Joyce. And if you want more great content like this, continue to check things out, especially at our realitycheck.radio backslash replays, which is if you've missed this, you'll find that there as well. Thank you very much, Helen. I do appreciate the time you've given us today. Uh, Don't disappear, everybody. Still more great content, including Woke Word of the Week. And Marty is back with Media Matters. This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Chick Radio.